Testament. So this shows us the kind of controversies that were happening early on in the mid to late 40s. In other words, before the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written, they were oral traditions. And Paul has a testimony where he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and after a certain while, he begins to preach that same message. Somebody say, same message. Thank you, because we learn in Galatians 1, if you preach a different gospel, you're anathemized or eternally cursed. So he's preaching the same message, but instantly as the churches are developing, Judaizers or those from the Jewish faith begin to push their Jewish law onto the new Christians, hence this book being written. So if you follow the timeline, as I do and many scholars do in textbooks like the one we go through in our Bible college, the survey of the New Testament by Dr. Elwell, He agrees that the very first writing of the New Testament was Galatians, and then that book was a rebuke to a false gospel. Somebody go, oh, snap. So it's been going on for a while. How many have been hearing false gospels in this generation? You know, people say, well, my Jesus wouldn't judge that, or my Jesus would never send anyone to hell like that. And you can say back to them, that's right, your Jesus wouldn't do any of that. Why is that? Because their Jesus doesn't exist. It's a false gospel. It's another message. Well, as we are now at chapter 3, we've already seen that there were two key people in the church that even got deceived by this, not to the point of being lost. I think that would be pushing the context too far, but they were wrong. Somebody say there's a difference between, come on, help me preach, there's a difference between being wrong and going to hell. There's a difference between being wrong and going to hell. There is a difference. You can be wrong, and I have been wrong, you have been wrong, still on your way to heaven, but we can look at these examples and go, they're dangerous because being wrong can lead you to hell if you don't receive correction. And so these two important people that we hear about in the previous chapters is Peter and Barnabas. Peter sided with the Judaizers. And let me just summarize that big scary term for some that are new to, uh, to hearing it. Judaizer is someone who takes the gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, burial, and resurrection, and adds to it the works of the law of Moses so that a person can then be saved. So the way if you were like lining it up as math, it would be Jesus plus Moses or Jesus plus the law of Moses equals salvation. But how many know that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Come on, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, everything. Jesus plus nothing. I get excited. Sometimes I wish there was a choir back here where all the bricks are at. Choir jumps up in their choir robes, start clapping. Some of you, this is your first Christian church and mostly your, your main experience of Christianity. We have to do some field trips sometime. We've got to take you to some different styles of churches. We've got to bring out the tambourines, the dancers. I know it's so funny because a lot of people in our church, this is their first church. This is where they got saved and praise God. That's amazing. We're thankful for that. Um, but yeah, it's funny because sometimes they'll visit other churches and they'll be like, Pastor, it was weird over there. There were dancers with flags. I, 
I don't know what they were doing with the flags, you know. And then others, there's a choir. I know most people have seen a choir, but they haven't actually been a part of a service, you know, where there was a choir. There was a choir. We need to get one. We have tried. We do, like, the youth presentation for Christmas. You would be surprised on how much uh, work has to go into just getting the choir to do one song or a couple songs (laughs) just for Christmas. But if you're asking me, we can. I mean, I'll have a choir up here. We'll fit everybody up on this stage. Amen. Uh, So it is exciting to see what God's doing in the global body of Christ and the different cultures around the city. But but going back to my point here, a a Judaizer is not someone that's kind of like us but a little bit different. No, a Judaizer was someone that would actually damn your soul. Because if you came away from the message of grace and said, now I believe this, now I think this is my message, you have switched what the gospel is. As a matter of fact, let's go, uh, it's not on the notes here, but let's go to the passage of Scripture, Galatians chapter 1. I think this might be good for me to do until we close out the book, just so you can see the intensity of what we're learning. Even though I don't think uh, uh, Paul stays always in the tone of rebuke, I think where we're going today, he, he gets more towards hoping the best for them. But look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, just to get the tone here, and then I want to talk about people of promise. Somebody say people of promise. Yeah, see, it's going to be a good message today. Where's Vinny? He's going to get on the piano. Da-na-na. We're people of promise. Da-na-na. People of promise. We're going to get there. You guys want to see me get there? I'll try. I'll try to get. No, I'm kidding. Half kid. Maybe we'll get the piano up here. But listen, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different what? A different gospel. Verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. So that's the sixth verse of the first chapter of the first book written in the New Testament, and he is saying people are changing the gospel. Let's keep going. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The worst kind of pervert is a gospel pervert. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under what? God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So very serious. We have to have the right gospel. Now just uh, continue on down just so everybody can see it. Chapter 2. Verse 11 in review, because I do, I do think it will help us uh, as we get to people of promise here. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, when Cephas, Paul speaking about Peter, that's his Aramaic name, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was taking and starting to lean towards that side of Judaizing. And like I said, I don't think he apostatized all the way. I don't think if he would have died, he would have went to hell, but he was close. And then look at verse 13. Not only did it affect Peter, but the other Jews joined with him in Peter's hypocrisy, so he was being a hypocrite, so that by their hypocrisy, even who was led astray? Barnabas, which was a traveling companion of Paul, his real name is Joseph, Barnabas, Bar means son of encouragement. That's his nickname, which is pretty cool. We know him by his nickname as opposed to his real name. His real name was Joseph, but he was such an encourager. And yet here he was named by that encouragement he would give, and yet now he's a discouragement. Now he is falling for this false gospel, and thankfully Paul rebuked him. Somebody say, truth 
hurts sometimes. Doesn't it hurt? But it's loving if you do it the right way with the right intentions, and Paul was there to do it. And if you notice as you go through the chapter of truth 2 here, just scroll through it for them so they can see and you can do your homework on your own. There's no real sign or retelling of their repentance here. So it could have been even ongoing while Paul is writing Galatians that it hasn't even quite been settled yet, that, that Peter and Barnabas are still going back and forth, but but uh, Paul is making sure he gets this letter out to solve the issue. Now, by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, which is known as the Council of Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus, overseeing it, the problem is settled, and by that time, Peter is on the right side, Barnabas is on the right side, and that's why we believe this predates Acts chapter 15, if you want a timeline of the New Testament. Now, let's go to our uh, text for today, a little bit of review there for you. Now, uh, Galatians chapter 3 in the notes. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has beguiled you? We talked about this before. This doesn't seem to be like 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, an actual spirit, an actual witch, an actual spell. It seems to be a strong way of saying who deceived you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed as crucified. And the reason why eyes is important, they're like, Paul, why did you just bring up before your eyes Christ was crucified? Because the very word for bewitching there meant evil eyes. It meant that someone put an evil eye on you, and then now you became all cross-eyed and evil-eyed. And so this is the idea, is that by someone false, by someone's false teaching, uh, by these people's false teaching, the Galatians are no longer seeing Christ, they're seeing the law, and that's what's getting them in, in trouble, because they're not putting their eyes on Christ, because as he preached, Paul, when he preached to them, they saw Christ as if he was crucified, but now they're being deceived and deception being like a bewitchment is your eyes going towards something else. And they are now seeing something other than Christ and him crucified. And if you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians, he said, I chose to know nothing among you except Christ and him, what? Crucified, because he would count everything as dung except to know Christ and him crucified. So to play on the eyes thing, you're not supposed to have your eyes on the world and on false doctrines. You're supposed to be cross-eyed looking at Jesus. Cross-eyed looking at Jesus. Y'all get that? Cross-eyed, amen? Keep your eyes on the cross. Not in bewilderment and deception, but your eyes on the cross. And he says in verse 2, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Do you notice what he does? He takes them all the way back to the beginning of their salvation when he was preaching to them as an itinerant missionary, what we would know as an apostle, someone going to places where the gospel has not preached, preaching it to people who have never heard it, and then establishing the doctrine and the government of God in the local church there. He's saying, when I preached that to you, and you got boom shakalaka by the power of the Holy Spirit, you got some of that fuego de Dios or that fayaya, when you got that spirit from the Lord. Did you get it by getting circumcised? Did I have to take you out back and circumcise you? Did you get it because you stopped eating lechon? Did you get it because you stopped eating uh, shrimp and all? No, you got it because you believed what you heard. 
So he's reminding them, this is how salvation came to you. And remember, it's not just that it came to the Gentile that way because they're a mixed congregation. This also is the way it came to the Jew. Paul will tell us later on that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was schooled under Gamaliel. He had a knowledge of Jewish law that would put most Jews to shame. He was the head of his class, in other words. But he's telling them, when I preach to you, did I preach to you the law? Did I tell you this is what you must do to be saved? Did I use all my training in the law to get you to be saved? No. He preached to them the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the payment was paid in full, and that when Jesus said it was finished, that's what he meant. That's what he was talking about when he said, it is finished. Now in verse 3, he says, are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh. This is what a backslider looks like. This is what it looks like. You start in the spirit, but then you go back to the flesh. And then the Bible says, as we'll learn later on in Galatians and in multiple places, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God living in the flesh. Even though you have a body that you're living in in that way, you cannot live according to your body, according to your flesh, the way that it morally desires. You can't live by the desires of your flesh. And those things will lead to death. So he says this to them, did you receive it by means of the spirit, and now you're trying to go into the flesh. This is like a question. It's like he's questioning them. Then he asks them another one, verse 4. Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I will ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Somebody say believing. Amen. Now look at verse 6. So also Abraham did what with God? Believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now why do you think he brings up Abraham? He brings up Abraham because that is the one that the Jewish people, the Judaizers, look to as their uh, progenitor, as the one they come from. If you remember Jesus and debating with the Jews, this was oftentimes what they would say. We're not a slave to anyone. We don't have a, a different father. Abraham's our father. We're, we're free, in Christ, uh, free in God, in other words. We're not slaves. And Jesus was saying to them, no, you're slaves to the law because you break the law. You don't keep it. And the father that you really have is the father of the devil. How many remember Jesus doing that? That's in John. John chapter 8. Let's just go there real quick and take a quick look at it because this is what he was doing when people would bring that argument up like, oh man, we're children of Abraham. See, they would use that as a way to get away with anything. And that's very similar when you talk to Roman Catholics. They say, oh, well, we have the Pope, so we can make up all of this stuff. No, no, we don't care. To the Pope, we say, nope, right, right? Is everybody with me on that? We say, nope, to the Pope. We're like, show us in the scriptures, right? But, but they don't play that way. They go, well, if this person said it, it must be true. So they would always go back to Abraham, and they would want you to take their word for it. Well, Abraham did this. Well, Abraham did that. And most people didn't have the scriptures in front of them, so they wouldn't know. It's uh, eight, chapter 8, verse uh, 31. And, and, and so when Jesus comes along, he goes, hey, you're saying all this stuff about Abraham, but really you're not telling the truth about Abraham. You really don't live like Abraham. You're really not even doing what Abraham did. And that's what we're going to look at in a moment. But I want you to see how important it is. Jesus speaking to them in 831 to the Jews who had believed in him. So the Jews did what? Believed. Somebody say believed. They did the right thing. See, this is the start of what a Judaizer would be. They believed in Jesus. And uh, we, did, we as theologians, we may disagree on this, but no matter what, we have to say they were at least believers. Now, whether or not they had went all the way, would have went to heaven if they would have died, I think they would have. Some people think they hadn't believed enough. They were just starting to believe. I don't know about that. But I would certainly say we would all agree they're believers of some kind. So they're not sitting back going, at this point, we don't believe anymore. These aren't the ones going, we just hate you, want to cruise 
crucify you and do all these crazy things to you. These Jews right here that he is talking to had what on him? Believe. Somebody say believe. Let me say it without making the blank feel weird. To the Jews who had, thank you, believed him. This is what he said. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now they begin to say, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we will be free? Do you see that's how they argued? They argued based on their pedigree, on their genealogy coming from Abraham. But look at how Jesus breaks them down, verse 34. He said, very truly, I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to what? Is a slave to sin. Thank you. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you what? Free, you will be what? Free indeed. Thank you. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Like in this way, you're Abraham-like descendants. I understand you're Jews, but you're looking for a way to kill me, and Abraham never would have done that. Let's keep going. In verse 39, they want to reiterate that Abraham's their father. And they go, and Jesus says to him, if, if you were Abraham's children in the spiritual way, like he knows in genealogy they've come from Abraham, but if you were Abraham's children spiritually, this is what he's talking about, then you would do what Abraham did, yet you're trying to kill me. Now let's keep going. They go, uh, uh, verse 41, we are not what kind of children? Somebody say illegitimate. You know what that is? That's bastard children. That's what they're saying. We're not bastard children. The only father we have is God. Now look at what he says in verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come for him, come from him. I have not come on my own. God has sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Now look at what he says in verse 44. You belong to your father, the who? The who? The devil. Wow. So they went from people that were pretty much coming to Jesus' church people who believed in him, people who said, I can go this far with you, but at this point he is now saying you're children of the devil. You see how quickly deception can come in. You see how quickly you can go from being a child of God, learning the things of God, to now being a child of the devil. And don't let anybody tell you you can be both at the same time. The devil is a liar, okay? The devil is a liar. You're not both at the same time. You're one or the other. You'll never find it in Scripture that you're both at the same time. Now, notice this right here. He starts to rebuke them for this. So it, this is what I believe, honestly. I believe up until this point they were believers in the sense of the parable of the sowers, uh, the sowing of the seed. Remember, one falls on rocky ground, and, um, you know, the birds come and begin to eat it. Well, that's someone hearing with a hard heart. They're never saved. I heard someone try to say that. That means they had demons. That is a lie. They were never saved. Somebody say never saved. The rocky heart never has a growth moment at all. The birds just come and eat it. That's the devil taking the word out of an unbeliever's heart, and they remain an unbeliever. The second seed falls among what? The cracks, and it grows a little bit, but what takes it out? Does it say birds take it out now? No. As you move forward, the two that fall that were once growing have nothing to do with birds if we're taking birds as the devil there. The ones that now fall have to do with their issues. It says that the one in the crack begins to get persecuted and under persecution like the sun coming out to a little plant it is now not able to grow. It is evaporated and it dies. So it's not demons take them out. It's because their roots didn't want to grow down deep. Go down deeper are you listening? Then the next one falls among the weeds, not demons, not birds, or whatever people try to say. It's weeds, and then he lists out what the weeds are, the pleasures of this world, the love of money, and uh, the desires for things, okay? So the love of the world, the love of, um, what are those three things, the 
Worries. Thank you. I knew I was forgetting one. Worries, pleasures, and the love of money. Thank you, uh, my beautiful uh, co-pastor over there helping me. Anybody can help me too, by the way. But just when I hear that shout out from that side, I feel the Holy Ghost. Amen. I feel my helper coming on. <laughs> you can have a helper in the Holy Spirit and a helper in your wife. Thank you. Now, going back to this. So the three, worries, riches, pleasures, no demons, choke it out. What's my point in saying that? They were probably a seedling at this time, and something began to distract them from the gospel while they're hearing Jesus. Something in maybe what they had heard growing up, thought that maybe they knew better than Jesus, and at this point, they begin to die spiritually. And in this conversation, Jesus looks at him and goes, you don't even belong to me. And I think that we could say, anymore. You don't belong to me anymore. You were believing, doing what's right, but you're on this side right now. You're an unbeliever. And so often we think to ourselves that, that we can sin as much as we want and there's no consequence. Go to Hebrews 10, 26. In our sinning, we always need to remember God has grace, God has love. But if you sin after knowing that what you're doing is sinful and you have no desire to repent, there is no more hope for you in that situation. Do you guys hear me in that? In other words, the sinner, uh, the Christian who sins will not turn into a sinner all of a sudden if they have a broken and contrite heart before God. So if you are convicted of that sin and you're fighting against it, but you give in to uh, the sin again and you're uh, convicted and then you give in to the sin again, this is the kind of person God is talking about. It's a person going against the conviction. But if you're another kind of Christian and, you're, and you're, uh, you sin and you're convicted and then you repent and say, oh, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have did that, and then you do it again and repent, Trust me, God will be patient with, me, patient with you. He told Peter to forgive his brother 70 times 7. Won't God forgive us more? But if you are convicted and then you just keep on sinning and your repentance is really not repentance. Like sometimes I talk to people, they live together, they're not married, and they say, well, I just ask God to forgive me. But then you guys still have sex together next, the next night. Yes, and then I ask God to forgive me. You ain't meaning that prayer. You know what I'm saying? You're playing with God. Don't play with God. He's smarter than you. He'll figure this out quicker than you will, okay? So don't live in continual sin. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that those are issues that take away the life of God. If we deliberately keep on sinning after having received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now, that's, that's not as popular as John 3.16, but how many know we should know that like we know John 3.16? Like how many know we should have an understanding of what brings us eternal life and then also what brings us eternal death? So if you in your mind come into salvation and you think you're just going to keep on sinning and play with God, that's what Hebrews is saying. Don't do that because there will be no more sacrifice for sins. That's not what the sacrifice is for. You're not to come to Jesus' bloodstained cross and say, Jesus, hey, quick, wash my hands so I can go out there and get them dirty again. The blood of Jesus is not that rag you keep around underneath your sin or in your garage just to clean your dirty hands to go get dirty again. The blood of Jesus is precious, amen? So he knows your heart, and he doesn't want you to play with him in that way. Do not mess with God because it's a fearful thing or it's a, um, a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And then it goes on down here that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Notice it right here. It says God will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing or fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, okay? How many want to be saved? 
How many want to stay saved? Okay, so God's not a divine kidnapper locking you in his white van with no windows, taking you to heaven, forcing you to go. You understand that? You can come in and you can come out. You come in by faith, you can come out by unbelief. And as I showed you before, let me just show you again. Hebrews chapter 3 shows you how sin changes the heart. Sin changes the heart towards unbelief because sometimes people will ask you, well, then how many sins do I sin to become an unbeliever? What if I didn't repent? What if I was a hard-hearted person for that day? Did I get lost? Uh, did I become lost in a sinner? No, the Bible's very clear that the pathway of sin, when you walk away from God on that pathway, is a heart of unbelief. In other words, you will be proud of what you're doing. You will be making excuses for what you're doing instead of truly having a broken heart. So when someone says to us about homosexuality, they say, well, do you believe God loves us? Yes, but he hates your sin, right? How many understand what I'm talking about? And then if they say, well, I've already prayed, and I've prayed, and the gay hasn't gone away. I haven't prayed the gay away yet, so I guess God wants me to stay this way. No, no, no. We say to them, stay in Christ, and he will change your mind. He will renew your mind. He will give you new thoughts. He will change the way you live. How many believe that? And if they sin, God will forgive them, right? Even the homosexual sin, just like the adulterous sin, just like the lustful sin, just like the angry sin, God will forgive a Christian as they sin. How many believe that? But then I say to them, is that what you are doing? Because it sounds like, as I have most conversations with the homosexual community who claim Christ, and by the way, there's Christian homosexual, there's Christian witches, there's Christian Muslims, there's Christian everything under the sun right now. So make sure you test their doctrine. Can I hear an amen to that? So when I hear them say they're a Christian and asking if they can still be gay, even if maybe it's wrong, but they keep asking for forgiveness, maybe they can squeak in that way. I go, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Because I said, here's the difference. Your continual sin is showing your unbelief towards God continual sin hardens the heart to believe God is a savior. So that's why the Bible says don't play with sin. Look at it right here, Hebrews 3.15. Just as, as it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Talking about the Israelites. How many know if we learn one thing from the story of the Israelites, it's God is patient. How many know God is patient, okay? So I don't want anyone to think you just fall out of salvation quickly like as if it's an accident. Those Jews who, who did it maybe uh, what we would say at a fast pace wasn't done by accident. It was done intentional because they were hardening their hearts towards what God was saying to them. And maybe it had been a previous conversation. It was building up. We don't know. But who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt and with whom he was angry for 40 years? How long was God angry with them? 40 years. So don't tell me God doesn't get angry and he's always upstairs in heaven like Barney, okay? God gets angry with folks. He was angry with them. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? To those who disobeyed. Now notice this. Highlight verse 19, please. See... Oh, excuse me, so we see. Somebody say, we see. Remember we were using that word before as bewitching, meaning you're seeing something else, but Paul says you're supposed to see the Christ. This is what we're, uh, the cross of Christ, this is what we're to see. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their what? Unbelief. Now keep going. Verse 20. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Do you see how I know this has to be speaking to a Christian? Because if, can an unchristian fall short of the glory? They have already fallen short of the glory. Does everybody get it? 
It says that you don't fall short of it. Well, if I'm a sinner, uh, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul, if I'm a sinner, I've already fallen short of it. What are you afraid of? I'm already going to hell. That's what people sometimes say if they don't think Christians can backslide. They say, once you're saved, you're always saved. And I use these letters of Paul to show them. He is talking to Christians. Who would have the fear of falling from the rest of God? Those who have already fallen or those who are standing in the rest of God, lest they fall out of the rest. Who would have the fear, believers or unbelievers? Believers. I don't know if that's confusing you, but let me say it again like this. If you don't have a million dollars, should you fear losing a million dollars? No, because you don't have a million dollars. Jason, don't you lose a million dollars now. Is that a warning to him? No, Joe, I don't have it to lose. Now, Jason, don't lose your shoes. (laughs) Is that a real warning to him? Yeah, because he has shoes. See to it that you do not fall short of this. Oh, so I must be in it already. That's the assumption there. You're supposed to have understood that. Like, okay, I'm a Christian, and he's warning me not to fall short of it. Just in case you don't think he's talking to Christians, I will continue on because it gets much more clear. Verse 2. Thank you, God, for verse 2 because I was struggling on verse 1. But I think the example of losing a million versus losing shoes got through. Did you guys get that? Okay, but let's go to verse 2. It's much more clear here. For we are... Also, somebody say, we also. So just like, thank you, the Jews had a word but rebelled. We have a word, and we better not rebel. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just like they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed entered that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on my oath in anger, they shall never enter my rest. So we have entered the rest, have we not? Now we should be afraid to fall out of that rest. Now look at verse 6 as we continue on into this context. He says, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter the rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their what? Disobedience. Thank you. God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. This man's preaching. Today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. Didn't we already hear that? That's what he is saying to the people. And I could continue on with this thought. The idea is when you hear the word and you receive it, don't then turn and harden your heart. Because once again, wouldn't a sinner be able to say, "Uh, Paul, you're telling me not to harden my heart, but as a sinner, isn't my heart already hard? Does everybody get it? Okay, well, I think half of you got it. Maybe not even half, a quarter. Okay, let's, let's try it again, okay? Don't clog your arteries, a 14-year-old. Now, that means something to a 14-year-old. Don't clog your arteries. That's the same word harden there. Don't harden your arteries, 14-year-old. Why am I saying that to them? Because their arteries aren't clogged yet, right? Now, if I say to an 80-year-old that's been eating bacon every morning and chewing the fat and all this, you know, like my grandpa did, he would just chew raw fat. Like, you hear chewing the fat? That's how my grandpa was, Italian on the farm. He would butcher his own meat. While he is butchering some of the meat and bringing it inside to cook, he would be eating raw meat, just eating it, chewing on it. That's why I always use as an example to people say, well, my mama told me this. And I say, well, my grandpa told me this. Should I eat raw meat and chew the fat like my grandpa did? Because that's what my culture did. So it's Christ's culture, amen? 
But going back to that, should, should, we, should we follow this path of warning someone who's already had their corruption done? No, the warning is pointless. Grandpa, your, your heart is hard. You know, your, car, your, your uh, arteries are hard. There's no warning to grandpa at that point. What are you now saying to grandpa? Grandpa, uh, your arteries are hard. You need to do something so it's not hard. But what is he saying to us? Don't harden your heart. So as a Christian, as we look at Jesus speaking to us through the scriptures, we shouldn't be like the Jews who at one point could be right with God in good standing and then at another moment harden our hearts. Go back to Galatians 3, please. Somebody say, I don't want to harden my heart. Amen. Now, I hope you're saying that as a Christian because if you're already, if you're a sinner, your heart is already what? Does everybody get it? Okay. Now, he's saying to them, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Somebody say, we're people of promise. Now go to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Let's learn a little bit about Abraham. They misused understanding, uh, they misused Abraham and they uh, misunderstood him. They used him improperly. Their genetics coming from him, they didn't understand why they were chosen. The Israelite people were not chosen just to have a law. How many know that? It wasn't just about like God saying, I'm going to choose you so I can give you a bunch of laws to keep. Let's think about this as parents. Do we parents have children so we can give them a bunch of laws? Do we have children so that they can clean our house? Hey, I need some housekeepers in here, so I'm going to have some children. I need somebody to cut my grass. I'm going to have some kids. Is that what we think to ourselves? I'm going to have children so they obey me. No. It's the same thing with God. Did God choose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 because he wanted someone just to obey him? That he wanted someone just to have a bunch of laws to keep, 613 to be exact. Did he want someone just to take care of the garden because he needed a gardener? God created some gardeners. That's why we were made in the garden. It's funny when you think about it that way, but a lot of people think that's what God is doing. That's not what God is doing. As a matter of fact, God has been about relationship from day one. Literally, day one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth for relationship. God wanted us to be in relationship with him. That's why he makes us male and female so that we then can procreate and have relationship with each other. We then sin and fall as humanity, right? And now in a fallen world, God is restoring relationships. Somebody say restore relationship. Thank you. God is restoring relationship. We know Jesus Christ, where we're going to in Galatians, Jesus Christ is going to be the culmination of this. But go back here to, to the beginning. Like before the Christ has come, before the seed of David has even been prophesied, before David has even come, why is he doing this? Look at this. Chapter 12 of Genesis, the Lord said to Abram, before his name is even changed to Abraham, father of many, that's what his name is going to be changed to, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. Somebody say singular. Thank you. That is very important you understand this. I'm going to make you into a great nation. So Abraham, your people, singular, are going to be a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. So that's where we get the term blessed to be a blessing. Somebody say blessed to be a blessing. Thank you. Now notice this. Keep going. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you will I curse. And how many peoples on earth? And all peoples on earth, or in other words, all nations on earth, will be blessed through you. So Abraham, I'm choosing you to start a nation that will then bless 
all of the nations. Now go to uh, Genesis chapter 17, just the story of Abraham so we can all get caught up to what uh, Paul is talking about. God appears to them. And he begins to talk to them about the child coming. They've tried to have it through Hagar. And how many just kind of feel sorry for Hagar in the Bible? It's like Abraham's looking at her one day, and Hagar's like, why are you looking at me, Abraham? And she's just cleaning her house, and Abraham's looking at her, and she's like, why are you looking at me like that? Uh, my wife said that we're supposed to have a baby. Your wife said what? That's literally the story of Hagar. I truly have compassion for her. She ended up uh, being a, a, a woman to give birth to one of Abraham's children. And that was whose idea? That was Sarah's idea, poor thing. And then Sarah tried to kill her and you know, do all these bad things. Where so God had, a, had compassion on her. How many believe God loved Hagar and take good, took, took good care of her? How many believe that? I love talking about that because we don't want to overlook those stories. Sometimes people use that against us. But it's Abraham's sin. This is, by the way, what I would say to somebody who would go, well, Abraham was sex trafficking. Well, in one way he was, and he was not right with God. He also lied about Sarah being his sister. Come on, that's gross. Are you listening? David had people murdered. We don't claim perfection for any of these folks except Jesus Christ. And we have to be honest where they fell. We do. So he begins to talk to them and say, no, 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 God's talking to them. And he's saying, no, I'm not doing this through Hagar. I'm doing, uh, in her seed, Ishmael, I'm doing it through Isaac. Look at 17, verse 3. Abram fell face down. God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of how many nations? Many nations. Doesn't that confirm what we learned in 12? The one nation is going to bless a whole lot of other nations. And how many today come from a nation other than Israel, but you're blessed with Abraham. Amen. Many nations. Okay. So I'm going to bless you, make you great, make you the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will now be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Now going back to Galatians 3, what are these Jews now trying to say? They're trying to say, in other words, we don't hear the whole conversation. This is one-sided. We're only seeing Paul's side here. But there's something going on behind the scenes that must be similar to what Jesus dealt with in John chapter 8. These Jews must be using somehow their relationship to Abraham to doubt the gospel. And they're not teachable. And they're going to the pagans who are now confessing Christ, which is actually a part of the promise that plural nations will come to this nation and be saved, and they're now saying to those multiple nations, those multiple ethnos, as it says in the Greek, those multiple ethnic groups, you must become a Jew like us. And now notice what Paul says to them. When Abraham was in this situation, what did he get his righteousness from? Was it from doing the works of the law of Moses, or was it believing God? It was believing God, and it should be obvious to them because it'd be like, no, duh. Moses wasn't even born yet. Moses doesn't come till 430 years later. 
Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Abraham was blessed before the law. And then in another letter, Romans, Paul even makes it more specific because in Galatians, they're arguing about circumcision, which would then open the door for all of these other laws. Circumcision is just 1 out of 613, and that would be the first. That's what you would do with the male child on the eighth day. Paul says it even more uh, specifically in Romans. He says, when was Abraham justified, before or after? circumcision. And what is the answer to that? Before circumcision. Because he even says it here. When Abraham, when those conversations were going on in chapter 12, in chapter 17, when Abraham believed God, he was right with God. It was before circumcision. It was before sacrifices. It was before all of those things starting in chapter 12. Understand then that those who have faith are children of who? Abraham, who are you a child of according to this? Abraham, which is a child of promise. Are you ready for the message now? I got two hours to preach it. You guys ready? Trying to stay under two and a half hours today. Looking at some of y'all ain't wanting that. Come on, Pastor, you got 15 more minutes. Okay, listen, we'll get it done in 15 minutes by God's grace. I don't want to lie, but I'm going to try my best. Understand then, this is Paul, he's preaching to those who are willing to hear, ears to hear, eyes to see. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. But Paul, I'm not circumcised. It doesn't matter. Did you have faith like Abraham? Then you are righteous like Abraham before he was circumcised. Because remember, he believed God, and that's what made him righteous. That's what made Abraham righteous. Oh, but hold on. I come from a really pagan, messed up family. My mom was one of the temple prostitutes in Diana's uh, temple. My mom used to have sex with men. I don't even know who my dad is. You mean you're telling me I don't have to do all of these Jewish things to become more cleansed? You mean I just believe and now I'm a Christian like everybody else? Yes, even you, child of a prostitute. And now just get this in your heart. What is the wickedness that these others are doing? They're saying to these precious people, you are not children of Abraham. They're literally contradicting the very message that's been preached since the book of Genesis. Now do you understand why Paul is so adamant to rebuke them, to correct them, to tell them that they're under God's curse? Verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. So in advance, the gospel was given to Abraham. What was the gospel? All nations will be blessed through you. How many believe that's a good message? That's the gospel. And all those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Can we just pause here before we go further into this? This doesn't mean that we will not keep Christ's commands. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But dear friends, it is so easy, and I've seen it even happen in a good church like ours, because I, I, you know, it happened in Paul's church. I've seen it happen there. It can happen here. And, and that is so many good Christians, even starting right in Christianity, get deceived by false teachers that tell you you have to do something else after Christianity to be just with God. 
to be right with God, to be righteous. Today, it's you have demons, you need demons out of you. Let me just help you right here. The number one clear sign you're not a Christian is that you have demons, okay? Christians don't have demons. Christians don't have, that's popular now. But there's other ones, there's other ones, there's other ones that have come around. I want to make sure I, I get them off as quickly as I can. There's others of you that say, well, because I'm saved by faith, it doesn't mean I changed my life. And then that's another error. Your life should change because faith results in works, the Bible says. So if you've truly been saved, you should hate lesbianism if that's what you were. You should hate homosexuality. The day I got saved, I hated getting high. I didn't hate people in that way. Are you, are you tracking with me? I just hated that about my behavior. How many of you can just be honest that moments after you got saved, you hated what you did for a lifetime? That was your biggest regret is you didn't get saved earlier. Anyone who truly gets saved now has a distaste for sin. Honestly, you will hate sin. If you, and, and 1 John may be a series we'll go back into. I've already done it verse by verse by God's grace. It's on our, our webpage. But I would love to go back there to show people that many of you who claim Christ have false conversions. I, I just did a whole thing on backsliding right now, right? Like I literally believe people can backslide. I truly believe that. But I believe many who fall into these traps actually weren't even saved to begin with because they have false conversions. Even pastors, listen to me, have false conversions. They've been in ministry, they've gone to cemetery, I mean seminary, and they have truly not been born again. As a matter of fact, I have one person that I may be debating soon. He wrote me, he befriended me. He's one of the popular Christians that believe you can be demon-possessed. He actually uh, befriended me, and I wrote him a whole long note saying, I want to debate you on this subject. Because what I will teach him, by God's grace, not that I'm better than anyone else, I'm just better off because of Christ, but what we will show him is where we have come from as Christians. We treat... Uh, Christianity as easy believism. And then therefore, because you went to a Billy Graham altar call, you came up to a church altar and you said this kind of flippant prayer, you think you're saved because that is how a person is saved. Truly, that is how a person is saved. I don't want to make light of that. But you and people that are in this position truly didn't get saved because it didn't mean the same thing. Is everybody tracking with me? Okay. On, G on November 5th, 1995, when I said Jesus is Lord, that was different than all the times I had said it as a teenager. When I said Jesus is Lord, November 5th, what that meant is no longer my way in any of the things that I've been doing. How many understand what I'm talking about? There's a difference. Jesus is Lord now over my friends. Jesus is Lord over my habits. Jesus is Lord over what I watch. Now, I do believe in something called a baby Christian or a carnal Christian. They're somewhat still looking like the world because they haven't realized all that God has done, and there's a transformation that follows. But once again, they're not demon-possessed. The Spirit of God is within them, and they're simply growing in that knowledge. Are you tracking with me? But the kind of Christians that tell you that you can either be demon-possessed as a Christian or you can live a continual willful life as a Christian are ditches of false Christianity. Avoid those at all costs. Another ditch of false Christianity is to then add works onto your Christianity to make you think that's what makes you saved. And hence, so many people out of legalistic, even Pentecostal type churches think they're saved because they didn't smoke or drink or chew or hang with those who do. That's the way it was preached in the 50s. Smoke, drink, or chew or hang with those who do. And so they built up a pursuit 
persona of a Christian, but truly Christ was not Lord of their lives. And so when you look back at the Methodists, you look back at Salvation Army, you look back to the, uh, the fireside and the camp meetings that happened all throughout Kentucky and then pretty much developed what we call the Bible Belt, they actually had what was called a mourner's bench, and they had what was known as tarrying. This was even before tarrying, and because tarrying for the Holy Ghost actually came out of this history, tarrying to be saved. If you uh, study Charles Finney and his testimony, John Wesley was a Bible college student on a missionary journey with the Moverians and was not saved. If you study their testimonies, you begin to understand what salvation looks like. And I am sad to say we don't understand that anymore. We are so quick to say you're saved because you said the prayer without having you examine your life to examine whether or not when you prayed that prayer, did you mean what it was supposed to mean? That's why when we do our discipleship here, we start you by God's grace at step one and we want to hear your testimony. Not that you just came to Christ because you were going through some hard times or you fell down, went boom at an altar call. You shake, rattle, and roll. That's not a testimony of coming to Christ. That is Christ has done something in your life, but that is not that Christ is Lord of your life. And sadly, and I'm being honest with you because I know pastors more than most, some pastors don't even have true conversions. Others are like the ones we have talked about, and they have backslidden because we have cheapened grace so much. That's why, as much as I disagree with Calvinism on 101 other things, Calvinists tend to believe that God chooses who will be saved and chooses who will be lost. And John Calvin said the ones who are lost are doomed from the womb, and that means it's not based on their choice, it's on God's choice. Though I disagree with them on that, Paul Washer and others always make reference to Wesley, and so I'll make reference to him because Wesley was preaching what I'm preaching. We should be in in unity on this, and that is most Christians are not converted. And that is the truth we're dealing with right now is an unconverted church. Paul Washer was preaching to a group of young people in one of his famous sermons in, in recent times, and he was preaching to them about false conversions, and they were clapping, and he's saying, the ones I'm talking about are you in this room. And I believe that. I mean that that is not just to be, he preaches that with a broken heart, and I preach it with a broken heart too as a pastor. There are baptized people who are false converts. There are people leading churches that are false converts. I can't say it enough to you. There are others who once were saved, and they have walked away from salvation. They have made the gospel about what they get out of it. They have served money. They're like Judas. The Spirit has left them, and Satan has entered them, or like Saul. And we need to be very careful of these things because a person in faith will not fall for those traps. I'm not saying a person in faith just automatically knows everything, but a person in faith, when they hear that a Christian can have demons, will go, no, that sounds stupid. I think I'm a a, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I think a Christian that hears others living in continual sin says, that's redonkulous to keep living in sin after supposedly you're saved. I remember that, too, as a part of my testimony, that when I became a Christian going to church, I just saw hypocrisy in a whole nother way. How many can relate to that in some ways? Like you see now people who are supposed to live for Christ but weren't. And it discourages you. It could even happen in this church. And that's sad because you uh, have the pure faith and they have a substitute, a cheap substitute. So it says those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How many want to be blessed along with Abraham? Amen. Now look at verse 10. Those who rely on the works of the law are under its curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. How many know if you chose today to say, well, you know, I kind of agree with the Judaizers. I don't think we should, uh, you know, um, 
eat pork. I think we should keep the dietary law. Uh, you know, I think that we should all be circumcised. I think that we should only worship on the, you know, the sixth day, uh, the Sabbath day rather than the seventh day. All of these things. How many know if you said that's my law, how many know the next thing you're going to be is a lawbreaker? How many know you're going to start breaking those things? How many know there's going to be things out of those 613 laws that you're not going to be able to keep? How about going to the temple and making a sacrifice? Let's start there. Can you keep that one? No, so you're going to start breaking all these various laws. That's why he says in verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. All those who are doing the law, God just points out their faults and goes, you have fallen this way, you have fallen this way, you have fallen that way. The righteous will live by what? Live by faith. See, this is where we got those two opposing ideas. One says that you're not good enough, that as a Christian, that's not enough. You still have to do more. You got to seek deliverance. You got to go to this conference. You've got to fast more. You've got to pray more. You've got to name it and claim it. You've got to bind loose and all these things just so you can feel normal as a Christian. See, that idea is putting works upon your salvation. See, we actually do it the opposite here. Do I believe in rebuking spirits and allowing God to give you victory over your battles, all of those things? Yes. But instead of saying do, 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 do to get those things, I say start at what God has done, 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 done. Do you understand the difference? One says do to achieve. The other one says count it as done and it's yours. See, you uh, people who believe this way want to run their race to try to win salvation. I start my race at the finish line having received salvation. Now my race is for good works. Does everybody get the difference? You see people trying to run their race to get salvation. No, baby. I started this race at the finish line of salvation. Downloaded, boom complete, I received a new nature when I was born again. Whoever is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. How many here are born again? For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How many today have had their souls purified, sanctified? How many have been set apart by the things of God? So what we teach you here is that it is done and now you walk it out by faith. We don't teach you here to go do so you can try to receive something you haven't already been given. Going back to the example of the million dollars using Jason here. Is that okay, my brother? You look so good today. Glad you came. It would be like me giving uh, Jason asking me for a million dollars, me giving him the million dollars, and then him asking me again, uh, can you please give me a million dollars? Not another million, but a million, the first million. And I go, uh, but I've given you the million. No, 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 give me a million, please. I really need this. But I've already given. Do you understand that that would be folly? He would never do that. He would be thankful for the million and then operate in what the million is and what it offers, amen? We keep asking God to save us, and he says, those who have confessed me have truly meant it are saved. Now operate in salvation. Does everybody get the difference? If you're truly saved, operate out of salvation. Stop trying to do something to be saved. It's been given to you, a new life. Live it up. Well, I just want God to change me. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he already did. So what are you doing now? You're renewing your mind to get in line with what God has done inside of you. And so the mind at any time can doubt what God has done, but that doesn't mean it, doesn't, it changes what God has done. Just because I doubt sometimes whether or not my wife loves me, that doesn't mean she doesn't love me. Just because sometimes in our mind it needs to be renewed doesn't mean that we have changed anything. How many understand that? How many know you can be deceived in your own mind? How many, come on, have you ever lied to yourself about a diet? Let's be honest. Have you ever lied to yourself about a haircut? You thought it looked good. You posted it on Instagram, but you deleted it last year. You found that thing and said, man, I'm deleting that. We lie to ourselves all the time. But the righteous will live by faith. 
You'll never be ashamed of it. See, the law, verse 12, is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the one who does these things will live by them. Of course, we fall. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Somebody say, thank God for Jesus. That's where we now hear about Jesus in the story. Why does this all make sense? Because Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone. Uh, can you continue there, brother? Thank you. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. The, the law talked about that, that. That was a part of their death penalty, not just the Roman style of crucifixion, but a, but a type of dying and being uh, uh, executed in the Jewish law, that you would be cursed if you were hung or executed that way. And it says those who are, who are killed this way are cursed. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so by faith we might receive the promise of the what? The promise of the what? The promise of the Spirit. Vinny, would you come, please? I want to preach just a little bit longer on this because we're getting to the part I want to go further. We already knew most of this, but some may say we're people of the promise. Now go to verse 15. Are you a person of the promise? Because if you are, you won't let anybody deceive you. See, if the Galatian people knew who they were, they wouldn't let anybody deceive them. They would hear these Jewish people talking and go, man, you sure know a lot. Let's say you're a pagan, and you didn't even know the Jewish Bible very well, but you heard about Christ. You're converted, right? Like one of these miracle stories like that happened in your region. These were happening all over the place. And, and, you're, and you're a little bit confused because you don't quite get it. And you say, okay, well... Uh, you say I must keep these laws, but that's not what Paul said. And they go, oh, yeah, well, see, Paul, Paul doesn't really know all that we know. We know more than Paul. Oh, you do? Yeah, we even, we even think Peter's on our side. Oh, wow, I heard he was pretty important. So imagine you're a Gentile hearing all of this, and then they get to the point and they go, so, so now, listen, listen, if you don't get circumcised, you know, you're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to be right with God. What could that Gentile, new Christian, babe in Christ, do at that point despite everything that they were getting confused over, everything that was bewitching them in false teaching, what could they at that moment begin to say? They could say, I know one thing. I was once lost, but now I'm found. And I had that happen when I wasn't circumcised. They could say, I watched miracles happen in my hometown, and it didn't happen when the circumcision knives came out. It came when the gospel was preached. Is everybody listening to me? My mother won me to the Lord with a simple gospel. I believe we go into the depth, but some of you here just need to go back to this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. None are righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are you listening? But whoever believes in their heart and confesses their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord shall be saved. Oh, come on, you just need to know the simple gospel. I could just imagine some of those Galatian people who had not even fallen, tempt, uh, fallen into the temptation of this as Peter and Barnabas were. I could hear them basically saying back to these people, I don't know all about that. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I've never heard that before. But this is what I know. The Spirit of God came in me. The Spirit of God made me new. And it was while I was eating pork and it was while I had my, my stuff not circumcised. Come on, somebody. Amen. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I'm trying to keep it PG, you know what I'm saying? I can only imagine all of the conversations parents have had to have with their children about circumcision. Brothers and sisters, now look at Paul. He makes this example. He says, brothers and sisters, hear me, listen. Let's take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly or rightly established, so it is in this case. 
the promises. Somebody say the promises. Thank you. Say it again. The promises. Thank you. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, one person who is Christ. Why is that important? Because no one could keep that law. You see, if we were all supposed to be Christ, to be saved, none of us would be saved. That's what the law demands. You have to be like Christ to be saved. Has anybody been like Christ and earned salvation? Has anybody been perfect? No, that's why he's saying very clearly, it's not going to be Ishmael, because he had two descendants. It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac, and Isaac is going to represent a child of promise. That's why God asked uh, uh, Abraham to give up Isaac on the altar there, because that was a sign of what Jesus was going to do for us, as the Father was going to give his son of promise. Abraham was an example of receiving a promised child. And that promised child was an example of what Christ was going to be. And he says, this is how it is. Christ is the seed. He is the fulfillment of the law. It's not that we disrespect the law. It's not that we throw out the law. It's not that we disregard commands and so forth or deliverance or other things. But we look to Christ as our fulfillment. Christ is my holiness. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my deliverance. And if I have Christ, I have righteousness. I have holiness. I have deliverance. I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost because of Christ. Christ alone. Verse 17, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside that covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Your issues with condemnation, voices in your head, or things going on around your life with temptation, don't take away the promise of Christ and Him being in you at salvation. What you're struggling with or dealing with does not take away what God has promised He has given you. So God forbid you ever think that something takes that away. Oh, I thought I was saved. No, you're really not until you do this. Or you're really not the kind of Christian God wants until you do this. So you mean I'm making myself a better Christian while I do more of your things. Yeah, you're getting better and better at it. That's not how salvation works. The Bible is very clear that the promise comes as belief in Christ and you receive the blessing of Abraham in Christ. You are complete in Christ. Can you turn with me to Colossians as we get ready to close? I got to show this to you again. I got maybe two more to show and then we'll close out. How many are happy to be at church today? Amen. Can I encourage you? If you don't have this kind of a salvation, I'm going to say what Paul Washer said, then you don't have the right one. I would rather you be honest Colossians chapter 2, I would rather you be honest and say, yeah, I probably did Christianity wrong than for you to give us a wrong version of Christianity. Christianity isn't what you're seeing in a lot of what you're reading about or seeing online. Listen to what Christ, uh, Paul says about Christ in us in Colossians 2 verse 9. Oh, go to verse 6. 
So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, so then, just after you went to 20 deliverance meetings, is that what it says? So just as you went to 20 conferences, just as you went to 20 counseling sessions, so just as you what? Received him as Lord, now live in him. You see, you might have received Christ but didn't live in him, and you're back where you started like a dog going back to vomit. That may be very true. We've seen that in Scripture, have we not? We've seen that in Scripture. So it may be very true that you're not saved anymore if you're experiencing some of these things. That may be very true. But I'm not going to give you more law to get you back to Christ. What I'm going to do is go right back to the gospel. And I'm going to preach you Christ and him crucified, the fulfillment of the law, the blood sacrifice that washes you clean. And then I'm going to ask you, who's your Lord? And if you say back, Jesus is my Lord, and I say the one that died, yes. The one that was buried, yes. The one that rose, yes. You mean the one who died for your sins, yes. The one who buried my own life, yes. The one who rose so I could be resurrected and have a new life, yes. Then you are saved. For with the heart you believe and the tongue you confess. I'm bringing you right back to Christ is Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And then what do we say next? Okay, you are a Christian. Now continue your life in him. Now live like him so you don't backslide. If this is a true conversion, now live like him. Be built up, rooted and built up in him. Be strengthened in your faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. The same ones that want to say, oh, bewitching means these Christians were demon-possessed because it has the word witch in there. Were these people literally taken like Kuta Kinte and put on a slave ship? Somebody say it's allegorical. It's an allegorizing of a slave. You are now going to be captive to this thing. You will be bewitched by this thing. See to it that no one takes you. Who is the you there? A Christian who has received Christ, who is being rooted and built up in the things of God. Don't let anyone take you captive. Can you say that to a slave? Don't let anybody take you captive. No, what would the slave say back to you? Jack, I'm already a slave. I lost that one. I couldn't run fast enough. I couldn't fight hard enough. Are you listening? I'm already captive. Who would you say that to? Don't let anyone take you captive. The one who's free. Because a gospel pervert wants to come and pervert what God has given you. And I'll put it in these two categories. One is legalism. Do this, fast this way, go to this conference. And then the other one is lawlessness. Just live however you want. Live, do whatever you want. You're going to, both of them will take you captive. They're both false understandings of what Christ did. I'm not earning my salvation, nor am I living willy-nilly in this thing. I take it serious. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I have received it, and now I'm working out from it. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends, everyone understand this, which depends on human tradition and the elemental, in other words, the superstitious spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. 
people will rather have you be superstitious and have you think about human tradition than to think about Christ. And they'll come with their philosophy. Well, if we pray to the mother of Guadalupe, she'll hear us. So many of these deliverance ministries are just the flip side of superstitious Catholics. I was talking to my friend Adam about some of these Christians who can believe they're demon-possessed. He said they sound like superstitious Catholics in Ireland. You walk under a ladder, get a demon. You have a mirror of, of facing the window, you get a demon. You step on a crack, you break your mama's back. And he said it in his, in his, uh, his accent. Yeah, they're superstitious. You fall for superstition. And then the other one is human tradition. The other one is human tradition. Well, my family believes this, and then we do it like this, and then therefore homosexuality is okay. And, and my mom didn't marry her, you know, my dad, and they live together, and then now it's okay. And so here is both sides of it. Here's one saying, here's all this superstitious, elemental, spiritual force garbage and then here's this other one that says it's all tradition. Do it because grandpa did it. And that's why I always say back, should I eat raw meat and chew on fat? Because my grandpa did it? No. Christ. That's what we stand on. I'll examine your life through the teachings of Christ and we'll know quickly whether or not Christ is your Lord. Are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? The old timers used to ask each other that all the time in church and we should bring that back. Are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? If you are, what has he saved you from? Give God glory. That should be our testimony time here. Are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? Tell us what you've been saved from. And then we can say, now, what are you struggling with? Oh, man, I'm thinking about going back to my own life. Well, don't you blame it on no demon. James says it's your flesh. Crucify your flesh. Don't you blame it on your neighbor. Well, my coworker's so cute. My coworker's so hot. No, cut out your eye, cut out your hand, and go to the kingdom of God because it's better to go to heaven being known as lefty than to go to hell with two hands. Am I preaching the truth or not? Come on, somebody. Brother, come to church. Brother, come to church like one of those blind guys. What's one of those blind singers? Ray, brother, come to church like Ray Charles. Hey, what's going on, everybody? <laughs> What happened to you? I looked at porn one last time. I'm not doing that no more. I'm going to heaven with Jesus. No, don't do it. That's an allegory, by the way. That's an allegory. That's an example. Hyperbole. Verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness why would you go somewhere else to get more full if Christ already said you've been brought to fullness that's why when we as Pentecostals talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit we better be very careful we don't say that others do not have a full relationship with the Spirit what we mean as Pentecostals, thank you, my brother, getting your master's degree and others here. What we mean is that the fullness of the Holy Spirit and someone baptized with the Spirit has now the giftings to release those gifts to others. But we affirm the fullness of God's Spirit in every born-again believer, whether they are like us in the spiritual gifts or not. 
Hence the reason why so many of these false teachers hang out with oneness heretics because they don't know how to discern the false gospel of the oneness and they preach a false teaching. And I'll discern over time if these are false gospels, but they're very close. They're false teachings and they don't know how to discern discern false gospels. Anybody who says you have to be baptized in Jesus' name, speak in tongues to be saved, don't cut your hair, all of it, they're lying to you. Can I hear an amen? Somebody say perfected once and for all. Now, brother, I'm going to want you to go to the King James on this one. Amen. Can I get an amen for you in the back, brother Rudy? Perfected once and for all. How many believe you've been perfected in Christ? Some of you, some of you doubting. You think I'm just Googling, going to make it up. Okay, go to Hebrews 10, 14 and give it to me in the King's English. How many want to hear it in the King's English today? Go on up so we can read it in verse 14. Praise God. For how many offerings? Does it say here by what offering? By how many offerings? So when they tell me at the Roman Catholic Church we have to re-offer Christ every time at the altar that the Pope or the, uh, the priest has prayed over, that that offering needs to be offered again and again. How many times has this offering been done? One, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You belong to Jesus. You've been perfected. Period. You might say, Pastor, I don't always act perfect. Yes, I know. Stupid is as stupid does. It's hard to break stupidity. I know that. I've been there. I haven't always acted perfect either. But that does not change what has happened in my spiritual soul. From the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, every part of me has been perfected. The moment I got sanctified, called out by the Holy Spirit, brought from being a sinner to a saint. Hallelujah. Being born busted and disgusted, but being born again into the divine nature. Hallelujah. And so don't let anybody take that from you. If those baby Christians just knew what you knew now, there never would have been a failing or a falling, would there have been? If if Peter would have just stood on his vision, he wouldn't have fallen for that. And so brothers and sisters, as we get ready to close out in prayer, this is what I'm asking you to do. Genuinely seek God to see if you're saved. Maybe you're not, and that's okay. John Wesley, who I mentioned before, was man enough to admit on a mission trip from his Bible college, he was man enough to admit, guys, uh, I think I just got saved on that boat ride over here. (laughs) Imagine hearing that on the mission trip. One of the guys leading the team, imagine being on a mission trip with a youth leader, and on uh, on the plane ride, they get saved. And then you guys are out telling your testimonies. And one says, I've been saved for 13 years. I've been saved for five years. And then the brother gets up and goes, I was saved yesterday. And that's your youth leader. That's how they understood salvation as God awakened them to the truth. That it wasn't merely just the words being confessed. It was a heart being taken over by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified God coming in and having it all. Like we, the preachers used to say, he's, not, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So check yourself before you wreck yourself. See if you are saved. Number one, I'll do that with you. I don't want to be deceived. After having preached to others, I myself be lost, as Paul said. And then second, 
Now watch, do not live with introspection to the point where you come under condemnation, where you go, I don't know if I'm saved. Maybe I'm not. I sinned the other day. How bad did I feel when I sinned? No, you look in your heart and you see is Christ Lord. Do you hate what he hates? Love what he loves. That's a way of just knowing that's your master. Is everybody tracking with me? And then you look at your life and say, Lord, line it up to you so I can be built up and please you in all that I do. That's what it will look like. I know I wish I could say a lot more and sell you a book for $19.99 and have you come to my conference. If you pre-sign now, it's only $50 registration plus $150 at the door. I wish I could sell it to you like that. But that's really what you're going to do. You're going to every day confess Christ as Lord and you're going to mean it. And then you're going to stand in your freedom. As we get into Galatians, hopefully next week I'll preach on the message, standing in your freedom. And just every day you're going to stand there. And if legalism tries to pull you this way, there was a time I fasted three days a week, every single week. I didn't think I was right with God unless I fasted. I didn't think I was right with God unless I prayed two hours a day. Those kinds of things will try to pull you over. It's good to pray. It's good to fast. But whenever you feel something taking you captive to make you feel like if you don't pray, if you're not fasting, if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, you're not a Christian, you come right back to where you were. You dance like this in the movie Hitch. This is your space right here. Do you understand? You, all my gente, all my people right here, you guys dance like the white boy. You only do the two-step. We ain't coming out here. In this example, the bachata sin. No, I'm kidding. Half kid. No, everybody's like, oh, man, how could he say that? No, I'm kidding. But you get my point. You just stay right here. This is it. This I know. Jesus loves me so, for the Bible tells me so. This is it. I was born again. Okay, it wasn't by works. Jesus saved me. And then over here, if your friend at the gym or wherever you go tries to pull you this way and say, man, look, dude, you're forgiven and can be forgiven. Let's go sin. Let's break God's commands. Let's sin more so we get grace more. Ah! Nope, come back in. This is you right here. Everybody get it? This is you right here. You're just two-stepping with Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm saved. I'm sanctified. I'm perfect in Christ. I'm not messing this up. I'm not trying to work it out. And I'm not going to go over here and just live however I want. I'm going to stay on the path of righteousness. And what is that perfect path called? It's called the path of holiness, the path of love for God. It's where you don't have room to be lawless or legalistic because you've given your whole heart over to Jesus. You don't judge yourself on what you do. Paul said, I don't even judge my own self. How dare you judge me in this thing? I belong to my master. He judges me and I listen to him. So if he says I've preached enough, I go home and sleep at night. I'm not going to be up at night thinking more people are going to hell because I didn't preach. How many know Jesus was okay with going to bed at night even though people were going to hell? He wasn't going to be legalistic about it. It wasn't his assignment to go to India. He was in Israel. That's for somebody else. So you stay in that position, and then you look at what they're doing over there, and you go, yeah, you may want to try to walk that line. Well, I want to see how far I can get to, to, to hell and still go to heaven. Man, forget that. I want to see how close to heaven I can get and still be on this earth. I might catch an Enoch and get caught right up. Are you listening? I don't want to see how close to hell I can get. I want to see how close to heaven I can get. And so we'll walk there, and then guess what we'll do in that place of spiritual maturity? We will then begin to share our journeys with each other on what's working for you growing your life with God. You could say, you know what I do? You know what I do? This is what I do. Somebody say, this is what I do. What I do is I like to pray an hour to two hours a day, start off with my devotional reading plan, 
then pray the Lord's Prayer, but as a workout, the six components, 10 minutes each. Our Father, I start with worship. Thy kingdom come, asking God's kingdom, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. I do the, I do the Our Father workout. Then I look at prayer requests online, pray for my family, disciples, go back to the scriptures, see what God is saying that's not in my assigned reading, and then I say, whenever I'm done, thank you, Holy Ghost. Let's go throughout the rest of the day. And then I'm sensitive. If God speaks to me in my car, I turn off whatever I'm jamming to, put on the scriptures that God is speaking to me. If God lays somebody on my heart, I call them up. If there's a sin that I haven't confessed to one of you, I call you up. And you've gotten those calls before some of you here. And I just live like that between me and Jesus. I stay accountable to the leaders in my life. As a pastor, I have other pastors. We ask each other all the time, are you saved and are you living saved? Because we've seen pastors backslide. So I make sure I'm not deceiving myself. Because I'm married, I have a spouse. She was there, right? Now it's an empty chair. But because I'm married, I have a spouse. I do prayer and Bible reading with her, spontaneous Jesus sessions all the time in the house. You never know when one of us is going to catch a song, turn it on the TV, and start worshiping. That's what it's like to be brought up as a church kid. Come on. My, my kids don't know what day it is. You know, like, Dad speaking in tongues. It's not even Sunday. He's weeping. The other day, I got so mad at my daughter because she kept going, are you really crying? I'm like, yes, I'm crying. Are you really crying? Where's Bethany? I kept asking me if I was crying, then she got in trouble. Where are you at, Bethany? How many times did you ask me if I was crying? About two or three? Twice. That was more than enough. You really crying? I was crying watching American Ninja Warrior. No, I'm telling you, I feel Jesus everywhere I go. I'll tell you this because some of you are like, how did that happen? Let me just explain it because we got nowhere to go. It's church. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day, right? Watch. I'm watching American Ninja Warrior. They always have people that they do it for. If you've ever seen it, it's where they do these obstacle courses, and they like to see uh, people who have special needs get partnered with those that care about those special needs. Like if you have cancer, they find a child that has cancer to, with someone who's dealt with cancer that's running. Maybe his mom passed of cancer, so he's going to run for this child, so forth and so on. But there was this one child that had a diset, uh, uh, genetic disorder that his muscles and bones didn't grow right, but one of the ninja warriors had that same disorder but grew up to be an awesome ninja warrior. And so they're together now, and, and, and this guy's about ready to run, and he's going to dedicate it to this young child. But then he gets this young child to say a confession. And this little kid, man, he's probably like seven or eight, he gets the child to say, we may be little. And the little child goes, we may be little. He goes, but we're strong. And then he went like this, and tears just started streaming down my eyes. That's all I needed to hear, because isn't that what we are when we think about God? We may be little, we may be little, but we're strong in Christ. And I said, man, God is touching my heart right now. And then my annoying daughter asked me, are you really crying? And then I go, yes, I'm crying. Are you really crying? Yes, I feel Jesus watching Ninja Warrior. I, I have asked pastors, I'll tell you one more. I have asked pastors to watch random movies to catch moments that I think God is doing in their life. I asked Pastor Jared to watch the remake of Jungle Book. Anybody remember the remake of Jungle Book? For those who don't, it's going to be a spoiler alert. Okay, here it comes. In the movie, the kid who's lost in the jungle, who's being raised by animals, is you know he's away from the people he was being raised by. Now he's lost in the jungle, and he runs into a bear. Anybody remember this? He runs into the bear. But the bear has his own motives for wanting the kid to hang around. He realizes the kid can scurry up to the rock in the top highs of the, of the mountains and get the honeys that he's wanted. 
So he's really nice to this kid to get the honey. And so he says, oh, yeah, I'll take care of you. I'll be your buddy. I'll be your friend. You know, come on over here, man. Uh, And just by the way, would you do me a favor and go climb up to that top of the hill and just, you know, give me some of that honey? And the kid does it. And the kid's so cool. He doesn't even care. He doesn't know he's getting played, right? He's just innocent. He climbs up there. He does it. And then the story goes on. And what you're supposed to understand is that this bear is just taking advantage of this kid. But at some point, the bear begins to understand what the kid has gone through. And he starts to feel compassion. And this is where I'll get the tears even right now. Don't y'all ask me if I'm crying. If I tell you I'm crying, I'm crying about the bear from the Jungle Book story. And then it comes where they face the villain at the end of the movie. Here's the spoiler alert, the villain. And everybody's scared, including the kid. And then who comes rushing past everybody? I'm telling cry right now. To take on that villain, the bear. And at that moment, God spoke to me. There are pastors who use God's people like that bear. But I want you to be the bear who runs in and takes on the enemy for the people. You don't use the people. You protect the people. And God is my witness. Tears in my eyes again. Tears in my eyes. I told Jared, starting the Church of Dallas, I said, watch the jungle book and make sure you're the bear. Why did I tell you that? Because there's no secret of spirituality and Christianity that I can give you to avoid these ditches other than the Gospels and the letters. My pattern of life may encourage you, but your pattern is going to be different. Don't let people draw you into another gospel message. This has been here for 2,000 years, pure and undefiled. It doesn't need our carnal hands to help it. God knows how to save you. He knows how to keep you, and he'll do it all through that love and that holiness and that sanctification. Amen? Can we stand up and give it up for Jesus? Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Somebody's going to go get the Jungle Book story today. Watch it. Love that. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. Those of us who are saved, come on, tell them thank you. Not by what we have done, but by what you have done. If you're not saved, would you thank the Lord for dying on the cross and then ask him to save you right now? Come on, these are my children that always come up. Isn't that something? They always want to get closer to Jesus. But come on, let's keep praying right now. If you don't know Jesus, ask him to save you. If you do know Jesus, would you thank him for saving you? Let's start right there. If you don't know Jesus, confess your sins. You'll you'll get it. You'll get it. Come on, confess it. You may not know them all, but start where you're at. Confess it, and you'll get the hang of it pretty soon. And then say, Jesus, be the Lord over everything. I believe that you died, were buried, rose again. Say it in your words. Pray to him. He'll hear you. Those of you who are saved, would you examine your heart? Examine your heart that you're not away from God, that you are truly His. God, would you affirm to us, those of us who belong to you, would you put your spirit in us to say, Abba, Father, back to the Father right now, that we would know we're saved. Do you know that you're saved? Come on, do you know that when He went to that cross, He went there for you? Now, for those of us who are here, and you would say, Pastor, I'm not lost. I'm not a, you know, um, a sinner. I'm not a backslider, a false convert. But man, I struggle a lot with the things you were talking about. Either on the side of legalism or on the side of lawlessness. I just need to be led by the Spirit. Would you raise up your hands right now? I want to pray for all disciples who want to grow in grace. You want to grow in grace. You want to learn how to walk this out. 
You want to have enough freedom to do all the things that the Lord allows you to do. And yet at the same time, you do not want to be in bondage to any of them, led astray or deceived by any of them. This is the message of Galatians. It's freedom, but it's freedom to live for Christ. When I was fasting often, it started off beautiful because the Lord asked me to do it. It was my flesh that kept doing it more. Some of you, the Lord is asking you to fast. Do it as unto him. Some of you, the Lord is asking you to give up things. Give up your morning coffee and start with prayer and fasting. These are going to be precious times because they're going to come from the Lord. Others of you, the Lord is speaking to you, and he's literally saying to you, take your kids on a vacation. He's literally saying to you, pick a show and watch it with your family so that they can see you enjoy life. One of the personal friends with David Wilkerson said that his children began to agonize spending time with him because he was so focused on what he thought was spiritual that he was missing his very family, which was spiritual as well. Come on. Ask God to guide you in this lifestyle of liberty, of holiness, belonging unto the Lord. The way I look at it as you're praying right now is that you could go to the wedding feast with Jesus and you could also go to the temple and clear it out with Jesus. You could go to the wedding feast and enjoy it with Jesus because you're free. And at the same time, you would have no problem standing up for truth and, and, and getting the whole world mad at you if that's what it took. A few moments, look at your heart. I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know what's tempting you, either lawlessness or legalism, but let Christ set you free. Keep your mind on Christ today. Keep your mind on Christ today. Don't be deceived by the philosophy of superstition or of people's tradition. A few more moments. Because we're going to sing like how we started the service, giving him the highest praise. And as we get ready to do that, I want to make sure that we got genuine followers of Christ. In the next few moments, if you need to come up, please come up for anything. If you have prayers of, I have a need of deliverance, we'll pray prayers of deliverance over you. And then we'll talk about sanctification afterward. We'll figure it out, right? But we'll get you set free from things in your life today. God will do it. He does it through his church every time we show up. And if you're here today and you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit and you want to have those gifts to go out there and change the world, we're going to do that in Jesus' name. But I want to make sure that you understand the foundation of Christianity first so no one takes you from your secure place. In the name of Jesus, Lord, seal us with the precious Holy Spirit. Seal us, God, right now. Think of a signet ring going over the wax seal of one of those letters from the 1800s. May the Lord seal you right now. May the Lord keep you. May his face always shine upon you. May you know that you know that he loves you, that you belong to him, that you are a child of promise. Hallelujah. Because you deserve the high. Praise you deserve it.